Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So um, we are in a series. We're going to continue our message series this morning on the Lord's Prayer. And last Sunday, Ben Barnhart uh, spoke on God's provision and God being our source and did a wonderful job and was so encouraging uh, to hear from Ben on God being our provider and our source. So if you missed last Sunday or at any point during this message series, I want to encourage you to go back and uh, listen to the podcast, whether you listen on our website or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen, to go back and listen to those messages. There'll, there'll be an encouragement for you as you journey along with us in the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, we get to forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, which in my opinion seems to be the most boldest of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It's bold for a number of different reasons, but his disciples, Jesus' disciples, come to him and they ask Jesus, teach us to pray, and Jesus teaches them to pray. Many of you may be familiar with the lady on the screen there. Her name is Corey Temboom. And I wanted to tell you Corey Temboom's story. If you're not familiar, she wrote this wonderful book about her experiences in Nazi occupied Holland, where she and her family were believers in Jesus and owned a watchmaking shop. Many of you have read her book. I'm sure it's called The Hiding Place or have heard of it. If you've not read it, I want to suggest that you pick it up and read it. It's wonderfully encouraging. It's a powerful testimony of God's unshakable love and his faithfulness to people. During the course of World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her father Casper, her sister, her older sister Betsy, and her family hid Jews in their house. Uh, Casper constructed this whole like cut out of the wall um, space for Jews to escape Nazi persecution. Hundreds of Jews escaped Nazi persecution, if not thousands, by the Ten Boom family. Just a powerful, powerful story. And I wanted to read to you her story and her words after World War II. She says this, As she went about speaking after World War II to churches or really any group who would listen, she says this, I was at a church in Munich when I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear, she wrote. It was 1947, so two years after World War II ends, just two years after World War II ends, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed to hear the most in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. She continued adding, when we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. 
Corey remembered that her audiences, often groups of Germans, left her talks in silence. The solemn faces stared back at me, she said, not quite daring to believe her story. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence they collected their coats, and in silence they left the room. She explained, and that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw uh, the overcoat and a brown hat, and the next moment I saw the blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back with a rush, she said, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were, she continued. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Corey recalled her shock when a previous captor approached her and asked for her forgiveness. I remembered him and the leather, uh, the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze, she said. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She added, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Since the end of the war, Corey had started a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that, she recalled, and of those who, uh, who lived in the home. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness, get this, is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. In her pain, Corey turned to prayer. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling, she said. She recalled the following interaction. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. 
And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corey credits God for her ability to forgive in such circumstances. She says this, catch this, this is key. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I cannot store up good feelings and good behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Corey revealed that trusting God meant trusting Him in all things. That meant trusting God to give her the power to forgive her Nazi captors and trust Him to provide for her and her family and their daily needs. Isn't that a powerful story? Don't you love powerful stories of forgiveness? We love powerful stories of forgiveness because they encourage us to become who we were meant to become. They remind us of the gift that God gave us in Jesus dying for us on the cross, forgiving our sins. That's why we love powerful stories of forgiveness. And this morning we're going to focus on Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's a bold petition, the boldest in my opinion. And it's bold because if you just pause for a moment and think about what we're actually doing when we ask God, creator of the universe, judge of the world, to forgive our sins as we also forgive the sins of those against us. It's a bold petition to pray that to the judge of the universe, is it not? It's arresting. It's convicting for a couple of different reasons. But Jesus goes on to give us this little nugget after the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you from the lips of Jesus. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He said it, not me. The Greek word for um, debt is used here in the New Testament. It's ophiliomata. Ophiliomata. And ophiliomata denotes something that's owed, something that's due, a duty or an obligation to give or to pay. So we see here that Jesus is using more um, financial or commercial language than he is religious language. Both here and in that little nugget there in 14 and 15. And the same is true of the word forgiveness. It's more of a commercial word than it is a religious word. So we're not really praying in essence, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. What we're really praying is, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Erase from the ledger every failure of duty 
to you and to our fellow humans. Cancel the debts that we owe to you and our fellow humans. Jesus uses furthermore this image in Matthew 18. This one blew me up this week. It's wonderful. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? Seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. What an odd number to throw in to the gospel narrative. Have you ever wondered why that odd, it's not only an odd number, but it's an odd placement for Jesus to say, no, not seven times, Peter, 77 times. Have you ever wondered why Jesus answers 77 times? Doesn't that strike you as like, why not 79? Why not 48, 53? I think it's a little bit odd. Well, for those of you who, um, for all three of you who pay attention during my messages, you will find this number familiar because for you, we've already been here in a sense. During the Jonah series, uh, we learned about the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were horrible people, right, that God sent Jonah to preach repentance to. And we learned during the Jonah series that they were descendants of Cain. Cain, of course, you know the story of Cain and Abel as Cain goes, uh, as Cain sacrifices his offering to God is, is not good enough, so it seems. He murders his brother in cold blood, and the blood of Abel cries up to God. Similarly, as the, the great city of Nineveh's sins cry up to God and demand uh, vengeance. They demand an account, the, the blood of Abel demands an accounting for. And so Cain, as we pick up the story in Genesis 4, leaves, um, leaves that place. And the Lord says to Cain, as Cain is afraid for his life, he fears for his life because he slaughtered his brother Abel, and now he's afraid of retribution from God and from other human beings. And he's so afraid because of what he's done. The sin that he's committed. Check this out. Genesis 4.15. The Lord says to him, watch what the Lord says to him. Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance. How many times did you think? Seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Fast forward just a little bit. Here's the connection. Watch this, you guys. Cain's great-great-grandson is an evil man named Lamech, from which all of the Ninevites descend. And in Genesis 4, 23-24, Lamech says this after killing, slaughtering a, a, a ton of people. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain, my great-great-grandfather, is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus isn't just pulling numbers from a hat. Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister? How many times should I forgive them? Seven? Is there a limit to, to how many times I forgive? And Jesus says, no. 
You should forgive your brother or your sister in ratio more than the most resentful, the most revengeful person that's ever walked the face of the planet. That's how many times you're to forgive. Seventy times seven. Jesus picks up on this um, default of the human heart, our tendency towards resentment and revenge, and he speaks into it in a way that goes beyond what men and women are capable of doing. He says you're to go beyond seven times. You're to go beyond the most. You see, what Lemek did was he said, God protected my great-great-grandfather. He put a mark on him to keep him safe from anyone who would harm him or slaughter him. And then Lemek set himself up above the protection of God and say, in pride and in arrogance and said, no one's going to touch me. I'll be avenged 77. I'll spill all the blood that I want to. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's reversing the revenge and the resentment of human beings as Peter asks him this question. It's a beautiful picture. And it's one of those hyperlinks that we see in Scripture that every Jew who would have been listening to Jesus say this to Peter, ears would have perked up. Their antenna would have gone off. Uh Uh-uh, that's Lemek. That's Cain. He's reversing the human default towards revenge and resentment. And he says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. And then Jesus teaches this parable in Matthew 18. After they have this little exchange, check out the story that Jesus tells. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle the account, the man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, uh, what was the Powerball? $1.6 billion? Okay. As he began the account settlement, a man who owed him $1.6 billion of Powerball money was brought to him. Since, my paraphrase, not the end of it. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had, been, uh, all he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Watch what he does. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a dollar twenty-five. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled that ginormous debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all uh, that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you, says Jesus, of you unless you forgive your, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
It's powerful. So what debt do we owe? What debt do we owe, you might ask? Well, let me tell you what debt we owe. <laughs> so oftentimes, um, being a pastor, I'll go, as I go about my, my week, I'll, I'll hear from so many people, I'm a good person. You know, I, I try to follow the golden rule. I'm a good person. I try to do the right thing. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And I'm like, ugh. Sick of hearing how many good people there are. I don't know why. I'm just sick of hearing how many good people there are. Because being a good person doesn't get you into heaven. And being a good person doesn't make you a part of the kingdom of God. And being a good person doesn't get you filled with the Holy Spirit. And being a good person doesn't enable you to forgive anybody. And being a good person doesn't enable you to receive forgiveness. In fact, just the opposite. If you say you're a good person, it disqualifies you from receiving grace. If you stand on your own merit, if you're a good person, Jesus says you don't get grace at all. That's upside, that's upside down. Can we just stop with the good people? I'm a good person. I try to be good. It's like, Enneagram 3, all of the United States of America. We're all just good people. <laughs> Is it not? Yeah. Pretty good person. Here's the debt that we owe. We owe a debt of obedience. Oh, that preacher, he's preaching legalism. No, we owe a debt of saying yes to God. He's our creator. We owe a debt of obedience to God. Every time you and I don't live up to these kingdom commandments, shall we take a stroll down memory lane in Exodus when Moses is given the Ten Commandments? Every time we fail to live up to these Ten Commandments, it places us in debt. Further and further in debt we go. And what a debt I owe. I don't know about you, but I've racked it up pretty high. An early church father, his name was Origen, he identified three general areas of debt for every human being. And those three areas are this. The first one is the debt that we owe to others, that we owe a debt to the poor. We owe a debt to our parents. We owe a debt to our children to love them as we love ourselves. Secondly is a debt to ourselves. You know, the scripture calls our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we owe a debt to keep our bodies healthy and our, our minds sharp. Over and over again, we're, we're called to renew our minds, renew our hearts. We owe a debt to ourselves. And most of all, we owe a debt to God. We're, to, we're called to love God with all of our heart with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with everything within us, we're called to love God. We owe him a debt. And that's why this petition that Jesus teaches us to pray is so very bold. It's the boldest prayer anybody can ever pray, to go before perfect and holy God and say, God, forgive my sins. 
Forgive my debt. Cancel the debt that I have racked up. Don't just cancel some of them. Cancel all of them. And wouldn't you know, he clears them all out. He clears out all of the debt, every single cent. Check out what David says in Psalm 32.5. He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then, oh, one of my favorites. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. Here's who the Lord is. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How many of you science nerds are out there? No. That you can go south on the globe from the North Pole and there will come a point round past South America, the South Pole, when you will cease to go south and you begin to go north, yes? It's something like 13,733 miles off the top of my head. But how many of you know that if you start at one point and you circumvent the globe and you travel east, that there will never be a point where east meets west. You will perpetually be moving in an easterly trajectory. Jesus is saying, so far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins are removed from you by the blood of Jesus at the cross. And that's the good news. Can you imagine if you just walked into the bank, those of you who own a home, or those of you who rent, if you just randomly on a Tuesday morning approached your landlord and you were like, hey, why not cancel my rent from like now and forever? Or if you walked into the bank and you're, you walk, it's your, it's, you're in line for the teller, you know, with the poles, and you're like, okay, now I'm moving. And you get up to the teller and you're like, hey, it's Tuesday, 10 a.m. How, how about canceling my mortgage? Does that sound good to you today? <laughs> I would love that very much for Sarah and I, and I'm sure you would too. But the teller would look at you and be like, uh, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen for you today. Jesus cancels out all of the debt, and that's the good news. The good news that Paul writes about our debts is found in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. I love this. He says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Catch that? The commercial language there? The financial language? having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood in against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Everything that could have been charged to your account is now charged to Jesus. At the cross... The very same person who teaches us to pray so boldly is the one who takes our debts upon himself and dies to erase the ledger 
of our sin. And what Paul is saying here is that there was a sign nailed to the cross that you might be well aware of that said, here is Jesus, King Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But what Paul is telling us here is that there was another sign that was posted and nailed to the cross above that one. And that on that sign reads every charge that could come against you from the evil one's lips. Every charge of indebtedness that could be racked up to your bill is nailed to the cross of Jesus, paid for in full by his death and resurrection. That's the good news about our debt. It's as the old hymn writer wrote, How great, how great thou art, my sin, not the part, but in full. Not just part of it, but in fullness. So what are we to do with the second part of this phrase that Jesus teaches us to pray? Forgive our debtors. The tricky word in forgive our debtors is as. Father, forgive our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. It's a tricky one. So because it's tricky, let's unpack it a little bit. It's tricky because we don't know what to do with it. Does it mean that we're to forgive other people to the degree that God forgives us? Certainly not. Can you do that? (laughs) Certainly not to the degree. Does it mean simultaneously? Does it mean that we forgive others as we move along in process, as we are forgiven, so we forgive other people? Is that what it means? What does it mean as we forgive our debtors? Many have taken it at face value. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, certainly did. He took it so much at face value that he prayed this. He says, I'm actually praying, Father, don't forgive me if I'm unwilling to forgive others. Is that right? Did he have it? Here's how I understand the as. If I'm unwilling to forgive others when they've wronged me, when they've hurt me, then I'm not asking God to forgive me. I'm simply asking God to excuse me. And asking God to excuse us is not the same thing as asking God to forgive us. I see a little bit of, let's break it down a little bit further. In any act of forgiveness, as Corey Tim Boom forgives the most unforgivable person in her journey, right? There are three key elements to that act of forgiveness. They're interrelated words. Justice, mercy, and grace. We sang about them this morning. Justice is God giving me what I deserve. Mercy is God not giving me what I deserve. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. They're all kind of in this dance together, these words. These aspects of God's character, really, is what we're talking about. And in any true act of forgiveness, all these three are at, pray, are at play. So when I pray, forgive me, I'm asking God to not exercise justice. You see that? Students, 
as you're in class and you're given a pop quiz and you've not studied, you don't want the justice of God, right? You don't want the justice of God. I'm asking him for grace, for mercy. Now, what's happening when I refuse to forgive others? I'm demanding that justice be done. That person hurt me deeply. They deserve justice. I'm not wanting that person to experience mercy. That person should be punished. I'm not extending grace to that person. So the question becomes, are those two movements of the heart compatible? Can the human heart stand before the throne of God in those two distinctly different postures simultaneously? Can you say, I take my stand on the basis of the cross of Jesus, but he or she cannot. They can't benefit from the cross. They must stand on their own merit. They must pay first. Now before we go any further, I'd just like to clarify something really quickly. If you are in an abusive relationship currently, Am I saying that, and is Jesus saying that you stay in that thing, even though the, the husband pummels the wife night after night? Is that what Jesus is saying? You stay in it, you forgive that guy, you know? Because that's what Jesus would do. No, I'm not saying that. Get out. But I'm trying to unpack here is that if we say these things in our hearts or out loud or think these things about fellow brothers and sisters, that we take our basis, our stand on the cross of Jesus, but they cannot because they've hurt me, then it reveals I've not really learned the way to pray that Jesus taught us. I'm not meaning what I'm saying when I ask for God's forgiveness over my own life, if I'm inauthentic for the forgiveness of God for the other person. Do you see that? Still not there yet? Okay, still not there yet. Okay, 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 hang with me. Repentance is the true mark of a forgiving heart. If you ever want to know about somebody, if they're a forgiving person, if they're empathetic, if, if you screw up, are they going to stick it to you or not? Well, is repentance present in their own lives? Anywhere there's a penitent heart, anywhere there's a repent, I'm sorry, God, I confess my sins. I need your forgiveness. You can pretty well bet that that person is going to be empathetic when you screw up, when you miss the mark, when you fall short. Repentance is always the mark of a forgiving heart. And see, the servant in that parable that Jesus told, he had no clue what had been done for him. He didn't get it. He missed the interplay between justice, mercy, and grace. His debt was canceled. His insurmountable debt was canceled. And he could not find it within himself to cancel a $5 debt of his friend. 
He missed it. He completely missed it, Jesus said. And at this point, you're thinking what I'm thinking. And what you're thinking is, I get it, but this is hard to do. This is the hardest thing to do. It's hard work to forgive others. It's difficult. It's costly to let someone off the hook, to, for, to, complete, to forgive with all of your heart is the toughest work, Corey Ten Boom said, the toughest thing that she's ever had to do. It's hard work when that person cheated you in business and stole money from you. It's tough to forgive them. It's tough to forgive a spouse who knows you so, so well, better than anybody else in the world, lies to you or says cruel things to you. It's tough when a son or daughter walks away, throws their hands up and says, I'm done with God. I don't want anything to do with him and I don't want anything to do with you and hurts you. That's tough work to forgive that person. The hardest. It's hard work to forgive. It's costly. But though it's hard, we must, Jesus says, we must let it go. We must let them go free, Jesus is saying. Because it turns out that the person who suffers the most when we refuse to forgive is ourselves. And that's only something we know in hindsight. Did you know that? When we find it difficult to forgive others, that person who stung us, that person who really wounded us, who broke us, we hold it over them thinking that they're the ones suffering. We got them now. They hurt us and I stand on that victim mentality and I'm owed. And you're going to pay up. And I'm going to keep you in prison and make you suffer, we think. Until we finally forgive and we find out the only person who ever suffered during that whole ordeal was ourselves. And those of you scratching your head saying, I don't, that's not true, haven't really forgiven others then. Because the only way that you can know it is after you've let them off the hook. Then you know the, most, the person who's receiving the most damage is ourselves. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. There's this guy, Louis Smedes, and he says this beautiful quote. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? But that's only half of the quote. Check this out. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is you. You've been in a cage the whole time. I've been in a cage. When I hold it over somebody's head, when I make them pay for it, the only person who's in a cage is me. So this morning's really about freedom when we learn to pray how Jesus taught us how to pray. It's hard work. But God will give you 
the grace that you need to do it to forgive that person you feel is unforgivable. And God will give you the grace to do it because he's forgiven that person. And he has unlimited supply. He has all the resource you need to forgive that person that hurt you, that wronged you. And then we'll be free. The Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they said, who can, who can really forgive sin? You think men and women can really forgive other men and women's sins? Who has the authority to do this but God alone? You're blaspheming, Jesus. And then Jesus goes on into that little bit about what's easier to say, pick up your mat or walk or your sins are forgiven. Remember that? Well, the religious leaders are kind of right. We don't have power in and of ourselves to forgive sin. We do not. But God does. God has it in abundance for us. 